ask people in our community to describe Emmaus. And I get a lot of different answers, but the one I get the most is, you know, Emmaus is kind of a weird collision of like a sacrament and a charismatic, like liturgical and presence-filled. It's this weird kind of, is it Anglican or Pentecostal? We're not totally sure. I actually really appreciate that. That's a great compliment. Um, so to that, I have actually coined a phrase for us, and that is sacramatic. So uh, we are a sacramatic uh, community uh, anchored in the ancient practices of the church while seeking after the manifest presence of God, the tangible presence of God, where all of the gifts are open to be used to edify the body for the common good. And one of those practices for us over the last couple of years has been the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday. And some of you came through early Wednesday morning to receive the imposition of ashes, which serves as the literal marking of the Lenten season. Now, Lent, if you did not know and you're unfamiliar with Lent, it is not what is produced by your dryer. Uh, however, it is a 40-day, you didn't laugh, that's okay. Uh, it is a 40-day period of time, it's a season, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, most concentrated on our human frailty our human fragility, our finitude, reminding you and I that we are, in fact, whether you know it or not, not God, not divine. But rather, we are broken humans who have experienced the impact at a systematic, corporate, and individual level of sin. Do you know what trauma is? It is when you've been sinned against. And we have all experienced that. And we have caused it. And Lent reminds us of this frailty and brokenness. It also serves as a season of acknowledging this deep internal longing for eternal salvation. Healing, rescue, and reconciliation with our Creator. God, symbolized by the consistent wilderness motif throughout the entire story of God that we see all throughout. We are reminded that something always happens in the wilderness. In the story, something always happens in the wilderness. It's the crucible of the human experience. Some of you came in today and you're actually in the wilderness. Some of us are in the middle of a shift in our life journey today. Lent reminds us of this motif throughout, not just the story of God, but the story of humanity. What was the pandemic? It was a wilderness. When did it begin? In Lent. March 2020. Which was four years ago. Can you believe that? Wow. Something always happens in the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness is 
the intersection of what was and what could be. Our transformation and growth as human beings at a psychological level actually requires a barren season. The growth of a garden requires a winter. There's an intersection of what was and what could be in the wilderness, and we require the barren desert for our growth and formation. Bruce Wayne went into the wilderness as Gotham's wealthy playboy and came out Gotham's dark night. And still Gotham's playboy. But something did happen. <laughs> You're like, that's not a good example, pastor. But something did happen, did it not? He met Liam Neeson in the wilderness. And if you meet Liam Neeson in the wilderness, something will happen to you as well. You might get taken. But anyway. My name is Spencer. I'm the pastor here at Emmaus Church. It's good to have you today. Something new is birth in the wilderness, in the desert. For the people of Israel and the story of God, renewal begins not in flourishing, not in blessing, but in barrenness and in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years herding sheep in the desert before leading the people out of bondage and becoming the prince of Egypt, which might be the greatest quote-unquote Christian uh, animated film of all time. Big shout out to Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. That film won an Oscar for best original song. Did you know that? Now you're going to go back and, and listen to it, I promise. It's pretty wild. Prince of Egypt, great film. How many have seen it? All right, if your hand's not up, go watch it this week, okay? Moses spends 40 years herding sheep in the wilderness. And then another 40 years were spent with upwards of 1 million Hebrew people wandering in and around Mount Sinai. Where is Mount Sinai? It is in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, the promised land. We actually have a wonderful piece of artwork on display for our entire Lenten season that is a uh, depiction of the wilderness by Taylor Malky. So I encourage you guys to go look at it, stare at it, take it in. It's wonderful. So consider that picture as a frame of reference for this wilderness motif. And though this scene occurs over and over again, packed with possibility of restoration and renewal, the call and the means of renewal is always the same in the wilderness. It is the call to repent. Of all the various themes of Lent, the bedrock and mechanism of spirit-empowered renewal is the call to repentance. Esau Macaulay, who is a New Testament scholar and has a Lent devotional that's fantastic. We have a couple for you out in the lobby. He says, Lent is inescapably about repenting. You can't fully experience Lent without repenting. If you don't repent in Lent, you didn't experience it in its fullness. So not coincidentally, for the next three weeks, 
the location we find ourselves on the way in the Gospel of Matthew is in, guess where? The wilderness. And our topics for the next three weeks will be as follows to kind of give you some trajectory. Today, we will walk through a theology of repentance. And everyone is on the edge of their seat with excitement at the thought of repentance. Next week, we'll talk about baptism. And then the following week, we will talk about the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The third one gets you a little excited, I think, does it not? Yes. Repentance? Uh, forget about it. But first, before we get there, Matthew actually wants to introduce us to a new character in the story. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 3 says, In those days, Matthew's reflecting back. Keep in mind, Matthew was probably written about 40 or so years after the resurrection. Oral tradition through the apostles maintained the teaching and the story of Jesus. But around the destruction of the temple, Matthew was written. And a lot of Matthew was taken from Mark. Mark was the, uh, as scholars say, the original gospel that was written down. And he is reflecting backwards. In those days, like an old man on a porch with a pipe and a cheer wine, talking to his grandkids. I don't know why that was a picture in my mind, but... I just imagine myself one day, pipe, cheer wine, grandkids, you know? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching, proclaiming in the, where? Wilderness of Judea. And the gap between Zach's teaching last week and my teaching today is actually 30 years. The gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is three decades. Just for fun, since my wife, Jordan, turns 30 this year, hello, talk about wilderness. What do you mean? I'm loving my 30s. Well, I got two kids and they're wearing me out. So, do you know what the number one movie was in 1994? Could you guess it? It's prof Listen, it is prophetic for our teaching today. It was The Lion King. That's called prophecy. Do you know what the number one song was? I bet you can't guess this. The number one song, 1994, 30 years ago. It was The Sign by Ace of Bass. Made popular by Pitch Perfect. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Is that not prophetic as well? Never gonna leave you up. I'm sorry. How that song was number one. 94 must have been a boring year. Last we heard from Matthew, the young Jesus and his family moved from Egypt back to Joseph and Mary's hometown, a rural community of about a thousand, 60 miles north of Jerusalem, called McLeansville. Actually, it was Nazareth, but um, for frame of reference, um, the good old town of McLeansville is 960 people in population, so roughly the size of Nazareth. And Jesus was soon to start kindergarten. It's where Matthew left us off. 
But did you know that Mary also had a sister? And her name was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was married to a priest, a a priest in rural Judea named Zechariah. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah were faithful and devoted to Yahweh. And about six months before Jesus was born, Elizabeth and Zechariah also had a miracle son. And that miracle son happened to be John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. I will refer to John the Baptist throughout my teaching as JTB. JTB and Jesus were cousins. They would have grown up together, spent time together, and they both were miracle children. Luke chapter 1 records some of the story with regards to John the Baptist. Here's what it reads, starting in verse 14. He, being John, will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That joker was in the womb as a Pentecostal. What? It's crazy. Some scholars think that he might have been a Nazarite, given the idea of not partaking in wine. He could have participated in the Nazarite vow, not cutting his hair, not cutting his beard. But he was filled with the Spirit even before he was born. What a prophetic destiny for this young man. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people, what? Prepared for the Lord. This was an angel speaking here to the parents of John the Baptist. Now, For the last 400 years in Israel's story, no prophet had spoken. Some like to say God was silent. The last to speak was the prophet Malachi. Malachi happens to be the last book of our Old Testament. And check out the final verses in Malachi chapter 4. This is utterly fascinating. Verse 5. See. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great day and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will, what? Turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Now, the phrase he will turn, or the NASB says he will restore, is the Hebrew word shuv. Can you say that? Shuv. Well done. Which appears over 1,000 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Over 1,000 times in the Old Testament, a.k.a. the story of Israel. It's a word that shows up often. But do you know what another English translation is for shuv in the Hebrew? It's the word repent. 30 years later, John's birth is where we find ourselves, or excuse me, 
30 years after the birth of John is where we find ourselves. What is it that John is preaching in the wilderness? He is preaching repentance. He is preaching shuv in the wilderness. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He is acting as a new Elijah, fulfilling this prophecy from Malachi. Now, Elijah and John the Baptist, very similar type characters. Both spent time in the wilderness. Both preached a message of repentance. Both drove Subarus, had Enos, wore Chacos, and were extremely granola. Incredibly granola. I'm sure they went to UNCG. (laughs) They were graduates of UNCG, for sure. And went to Asheville on occasion to stay in a yurt. Isn't it interesting how you can just, you can easily stereotype people. Like it just is so easy to do that. I know we shouldn't, right? You know, it's partial truth, not the whole truth. I get that. But there is, a, there is some symbolism across the scope of people, you know, and it seems as though that when you look at John, you're like, man, this guy either was really hipster granola or something. I, I don't know what, but I'm pretty sure he probably shopped at REI. So, you know, verse 4 says this, not only did he shop at REI, but he probably shopped at some kind of local grocery co-op, like Deep Roots, downtown, right? It says this, it says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. Now, we don't know if that's referring to his bodily garment as being hairy and furry, or he actually wore some sort of covering made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. So did Elijah, if you go read about him in 2 Kings. And look what the man eats. His food was locusts and wild honey. How much more granola can you get than locusts and wild honey? And as I said, throughout Israel's story, the wilderness didn't represent the end. It was never meant to represent the end. Preparation phase. A new beginning. A new Genesis, a similar motif we've seen so far. Renewal and restoration begins, as I've alluded to, not in blessing, but in barrenness. Your renewal, your restoration does not begin in blessing, but in barrenness. Blessing comes out of barrenness. Spring comes out of winter. Joy comes after a long night in the morning. Verse 3 says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew again is connecting us back to the story of Israel in the Old Testament. A voice, I like the word in Greek for voice, it's actually phone, P-H-O-N-E. A phone of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3. If you read Malachi chapter 3, there's also similar language about a path being made straight for the Lord and a preparation for his coming. When I was a child, it was one thing that just really got on my mom's nerves. 
think about for a second, like, what was the thing that really just got on your mother's nerves that you did over and over and over again? For me, one of those things was if I was with a friend at school and she was picking us up, sometimes I would ask my mother in front of my friend, hey, mom, can Johnny come over to the house and play while Johnny's there and my mom's there? Drove my mom mad. She couldn't stand it. You know why? The house wasn't ready for Johnny. Which, to be honest, in my house growing up, the house was never ready for Johnny. I don't know about you. My mom used to say, our house is not dirty, son. It's lived in. Mom, that's, that just means dirty. Honestly, you know. It's like she used to tell me as a kid, she's like, you're not fat, you're husky. No, that's condescending. That's what that is. Thank you. All right? So I would ask my mom, she gets so mad because the house was not prepared. It wasn't ready. It was lived in. But for you, I want you to consider for a second the one celebrity that you would love to meet. Writer, artist, athlete, you name it. Leader, thinker that you'd love an hour with. And on a Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock when you're on Wendover, you get a text message from this celebrity's personal assistant saying, hey, so-and-so. We're going to be there in an hour at your house. You would be freaking out at the thought of a celebrity showing up to your house. At least I would, because my house is never prepared for random company. But you want to know a trick to cleaning a house quick? Throw all of the stuff in a bedroom, all right? Lock the bedroom door and light a candle. Boom, you cleaned your house. That's all you got to do. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm going to be there. I'm coming. You'd be freaking out because you're not prepared. When Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, is saying, prepare the way for the Lord or make straight paths for him, it is providing for us a word picture of a king arriving from the desert. When a king would arrive in the ancient world, people would go out of the city to greet the king and smooth out a road for his arrival. This is way before modern interstate systems and DOT. They would go out and they would actually prepare and smooth out the road for the arrival of this royal figure. And as John is quoting Isaiah, and this is the context in which he is revealing to us, what is he saying? He is saying to us that a king has arrived. You need to prepare. He's on the outskirts of town, and he's coming. The king you have been waiting for, for so long, for centuries, is coming, and you need to prepare. The NASB says, make ready. Make ready. Israel was not ready. Israel was not prepared. 
And the task for John, as we see here in Matthew's gospel account, before we even get to the ministry of Jesus, is to prepare a way for Jesus to go to his throne. John is in some ways out in the wilderness, breaking up fallow ground, preparing the soil, preparing people for the seed of new creation. The breaking of fallow ground comes before flourishing. The breaking of fallow ground in your life comes before harvest. And he is breaking up the fallow ground. Some of us are like, God, come. God, I want you. God, I seek you. But you aren't prepared to receive. Your heart is hard. And it needs to be broken up to receive the seed of new creation. This is what John is doing. And so this provides an important faith paradigm for us as a people of God. Without preparation, we often miss him. Especially in a hurried and distracted and um, overly paced information age. We miss him. Do you not think that in an age of distraction, we would miss the presence of God? Preparation, friends, precedes presence. You want the presence of God? You need to prepare yourself to receive the presence of God because he's an all-consuming fire. He's not just your neighbor next door who comes over every once in a while with some cookies. Yes, he's friend, but he's an all-consuming fire who is holy. Like, he is so good, he's on fire. We have to prepare ourselves. And we see that laid out here in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 3. In Exodus 19, Moses and the people of Israel are told to prepare themselves for three days. Can you imagine us sending out an email to all of you, middle of the week, and we're like, prepare yourself for Sunday. Prepare yourself for the presence of God Sunday morning. I love that because a lot of us come in on Sunday morning not prepared. And that's okay, but I'm charging us, and I think the scriptures are charging us, John the Baptist is charging us, Yahweh to Moses is charging us to prepare ourselves for the arrival of the king. And he tells them to prepare for three days before his presence would come down in a cloud on Sinai. Now, what might be required kingdom preparation or royal preparation? The requirement, the preparation, is repentance. Not fanfare, not hype, not a show, not posts on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or whatever social media of your choice. Not parades, but repentance. That is how we prepare. A lot of us just get hyped about Jesus' coming, but we haven't repented. We might make a great little Facebook post about Jesus, and our heart is wicked.
What is required, kingdom preparation, is repentance. It's not fanfare. Parties happen in the city, but movements begin in the wilderness. Parties happen in the city, but movements begin in the wilderness. Go read about the desert fathers and mothers of the 4th and 5th century. They left the city to meet the presence of God. I'm not encouraging us to be Luddites and move out into you know, rural Guilford County by any means. But what I am saying is that throughout the story of God, movements begin not in the center of influence, but actually on the fringes, in the wilderness. So John the Baptist is out preaching and proclaiming this message of repentance. He's not just, he's not just doing good deeds. He's not just serving people. He's not just a good dude. He is preaching and proclaiming repentance with his mouth. Listen, you actually can't share the gospel without opening your mouth. You can't. You can be philanthropic. You can love someone and be compassionate, certainly, but you cannot share the gospel because the gospel is an announcement. It is a proclamation of an event that's happened in history that because of it... All of history has changed. He's preaching. And he's also baptizing people in the Jordan River, which is an act of cleansing and what? Repentance. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I actually have a picture for you guys to see the Judean wilderness and the Jordan River to give you all a visual perspective of the landscape that John might have found himself in. There he is, down there in the bottom. Do you see him? He's baptizing people right there. I'm just kidding. He's not there. <laughs> but that gives you a picture of where John was in the Judean wilderness. Interestingly enough, the Jordan River has played a key role as well in the story. It was the river that Joshua, or Yeshua, led the people through after 40 years of wandering in the where? The desert, the wilderness, into the promised land. So the river was the gateway to new beginnings. The river was the gateway to a new genesis. Baptism is a gateway into new life. It is a gateway into new beginnings. The formation and the solidification of a new society happened on the other side of the Jordan River. And what does Joshua say prior to crossing the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3? Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourself now. Dedicate yourself now. Devote yourself now. Prepare now. Because tomorrow, God is going to show up and you've got to be ready and prepared. Before we enter a new life, you must consecrate yourself. Dedicate yourself. Devote yourself. Make yourself holy. By way of the invitation of the Trinitarian community of God. Verse 7 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which just means spreaders of poison. 
Try using that phrase sometime this week with your spouse or your friend. You're a brood of vipers, man. What, what is that, you know? Spreader of poison. <laughs> He's saying you're spreaders of poison. What does poison do? It kills people. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Here we have our first introduction to the would-be opposers of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We will give them more attention later on, but quickly. These two were rival religious groups who didn't like each other. They represented different economic groups and people within Israel. And they had different theological and ideological understandings. Needless to say, this was a similar ancient version of modern liberals and conservatives. Yet, both find a commonality. They don't like John the Baptist, and they don't like Jesus. And they won't repent. I know during the Super Bowl, there's a lot of commotion about the He Gets Us ad. Did anyone see the He Gets Us ad last, last week? A lot of commotion. Very polarizing on either end. Neither side seemed to like it, which is so interesting. For various reasons. But you know what I think is interesting? I don't know that our problem is that we don't believe that Jesus gets us. I think most people would say that. I think our problem is we don't get him. We, 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 if, if you look at the actual conversation around the ad, people don't seem to get Jesus. Neither did the Pharisees or Sadducees. And they wouldn't repent. They held on tightly to their ideology, their agenda, their vision, their power, influence, and status. And didn't repent. Similar to our time today. We'll get back to them later in Matthew. It's a great time to talk about them during an election year. <laughs> However, for us to enter into this new salvation life, not salvation moment, salvation life, and new beginning, you and I, unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, must repent. We have to repent. In fact, this is just uh, John the Baptist or JTB's uh, prefacing of Jesus' core command. Jesus' campaign slogan, as we will soon see, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That is his core teaching, his core command, his core imperative. This is to be our first response to the good news of Jesus, to the gospel of Jesus, to the announcement of Jesus the King. It is repentance. So, what is it and what does it mean? That's our question for today. Repentance has a double meaning. The Hebrew word, as I said, shuv, literally means turn around or return. You've been in exile. You turn your back on me. Return home. Come home. In other words, turn 
around. You're going the wrong way. Now, the Greek word for repent is metanoia. Can you say that? Metanoia. And metanoia means a changing of the mind, to change your mind, or beyond the mind. But what exactly is the mind? Some of us have lost ours and we can't find it. We can't find it because we don't know what we're looking for. So what is the mind exactly? Dan Siegel, who is a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA and probably one of the most um, forerunning experts and thought leaders around psychiatry and neuroscience and the role of the brain and the mind, defines the mind this way. He defines it as the emergent self-organizing process, both embodied and relational, that regulates energy and information flow within and among us. In other words, the mind is much more than neurochemistry and brain activity. The mind and the brain are different. The mind is an organizing, ordering, integrating, and regulating capacity that involves your whole person. The mind, to make it even more simple, is like soil. Did you know that soil is a self-organizing ecosystem made up of air, water, minerals, organic matter, and macro and microorganisms, all working together and inter interacting closely? So, if this is what the mind is, fundamentally, repentance is a reordering and reorganizing of our life. It is not just an I'm sorry. It's not just an apology. It's not just conviction. It's not just a feeling of guilt or shame or sorrow. It is actually an active process of reordering and reorganizing our whole life structure, including every facet of our being. Dare I say, it is preparation, not just to receive the king, but the seed of eternal life. We reorder ourselves to receive him. And remember where we were in the beginning of it all? In a garden. And where will we be in the end? A garden-like city. If repentance is a turning around, and a change of mind, there are, I believe, four changes associated with repentance. And I'm only going to zero in on one today. The other three I will touch on in a couple of weeks. So hold on tight for the other three. First of all, we have to realize that repentance means change. <laughs> it's not overly complex. Repentance, metanoia, shuv, means there is some sort of change that has happened. Things can't be the same after you repented. 
or it's not actually repentance. It might be sharing. It might even be confession. But it's not necessarily repentance. Repentance, fundamentally, is about change. But the first of four changes is that it is a change of direction. It is a change of direction. A change of direction assumes movement. The philosopher James K.A. Smith says that human beings are like sharks. We're always on the move. We're dynamic creatures. We are emerging. We're always transcending our existence. We're always becoming. We're moving after something. We're goal-oriented people. A newborn child right out of the womb starts looking to be fed instantly the moment he or she touches the mother. We come out of the womb with a goal. Kurt Thompson, the psychiatrist, says we come out looking for someone who is looking at us. It's a fundamental human experience. We are direction-driven creatures. What is in front of us is what is driving us. And repentance is a change of movement. It's a change of direction. You and I are going after something or someone. Worship is not a religious thing. Worship is a human thing. We can't not worship. We can't not have faith. We put our faith and trust into something or someone. Whether it's an ideology, it's a president, it's an idea, it's an influencer, it's some sort of practice, it's our money, it's a system, it's a relationship. We put our faith and trust in something or someone that gets us through the day. And because this is a change of direction... This also means that repentance is a change, not just of the mind, but of the heart. Of the heart. Because it is the heart, friends, that directs your life. That directs your life. The will. You have agency and freedom to choose and make decisions and to think on the decisions that you make to gain awareness of the decisions you make, to appraise, to consider. If I make this decision, it's going to impact this decision. That's what economics is. Economics is all about trade-offs. If I do this, I can't do this. If I do this, I can't do that. Change of direction requires a change of heart, a change of will, change of desire and motivation. William James, who some argue is the father of modern psychology, used the term metanoia to refer to a fundamental and stable change in an individual's life orientation, life direction. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you heading? You don't ask a rock where it's going. You don't ask a lion in the savannah, where, where are you going? Lions sleep like 20 hours a day. Did you know that? That is wild. Man, 20 hours a day. I would love 20 hours right now. We are unique in that we are always going after something. And metanoia is a change in an individual's life orientation. 
Macaulay goes on to say that repentance is a change in direction, a spirit-empowered turning around. You can't try hard and repent. God initiates with his provenient grace. He goes before you, provides for you the ability to respond. This is what it means for us to be responsible creatures. We have the ability and capacity and potential to respond to what's in front of us. Repentance, then, he says, is the first step we make toward God. But to turn toward God, we must turn away from something else. What is that something else? What is that something else? Turning towards something. John the Baptist gave his life to prepare the way for the Lord. He's literally called John the Baptizer. That's who he was. That was his descriptor. That was his vocation. That was his adjective. What is yours? Ashley the blank. Sam the blank. Jordan the blank. Spencer the blank. What is your adjective? What is your descriptor? Because your descriptor determines, I think, often, or reveals to us what you're going after. The direction that you are in. In the Old Testament, the inner life of the person was just called the heart. The mind and heart were not separated. It was one and the same. It was just the interior life of the person, which is the director of our life, much like the gardener of the soil. Our desires direct our attention. This is why Jesus in John says to the early disciples, what do you want? Our desires direct our attention. If you want lunch, you go get lunch. If you want a friend, you go get a friend. Our desires direct our attention and our attention and our focus, which we'll talk about later in a couple weeks, curate our desires. So the heart directs, motivates, and wills us towards something or someone, and the mind organizes, orders, and integrates all of our life. However, we won't be able to repent or to turn or to change direction until we acknowledge that what we are currently putting our faith in isn't producing what it promises. Our emptiness and the failure of our society's strategy in the game of life, undergirded by radical individualism and consumerism and increasing polarization of both the left and the right. Until we are able to diagnose the ideas and patterns and scripts of our culture and acknowledge are they working or not, we will not be able to repent. Mark Sayers, who's a cultural commentator and writer, he says this. He says, cultural exhaustion opens the doorways to the human heart. When the cultural scripts we live by are exposed as frauds delivering bad fruit, new possibilities begin to emerge. Renewal comes when we are sickened by our false gods and the broken premises of our impotent idols and ideologies. 
When we are shattered by our striving and pathetic attempts at saving ourselves, we fall into the arms of Christ to be made or to be remade without caveats and compromises. Until the script of society makes you sick, you won't be able to repent. Until you acknowledge the counterfeit system of our society, you will not be able to turn. Some of us in this room are like kids who keep putting our tokens into a machine trying to win and grab that teddy bear that is going to somehow provide ultimate meaning, safety, and love. And we all know how a toddler or a child gets obsessed with a teddy bear or a stuffed animal. At least mine does. And we put our coins in constantly, hoping to grab it. And maybe we do grab it. But what ends up happening? You go right back to that same machine, asking for more tokens from mommy and daddy, wanting another teddy bear. Only to fill our room with teddy bears, still searching for meaning, safety, and eternal security and salvation. Until we run out of tokens, we won't repent. And a lot of us in here today, I'm going to close, this is personal. A lot of us today, in this space, I've learned this, grew up in the church. For some of us, praise God. For some of you, you need a lot of therapy. I've been in a lot of therapy myself. I'm a pastor's kid, listened to Reliant K growing up, and I follow Jesus now. It's crazy. But do you know why, honestly? Do you know why I follow Jesus now? There's not a better alternative. Show me a better alternative, and I will take you up on it. And a lot of us, unfortunately, have been turned away because of the brokenness of the people of God who have done harmful things, who didn't repent. And I understand that. I get it. Communities hurt people. When you get this close, you hurt each other. But I promise you today that Jesus is an eternal teddy bear and king of the universe who offers you life and salvation and a concrete resource for navigating the chaos of our disordered moment. There are people all across the country right now I've been reading about who are encountering Jesus in crazy ways. Crazy ways. People going on like mushroom tours across the world, like encountering Jesus in these like crazy experiences. And they're like, oh, that meant this guy in Jesus. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, you were high, you know. But he's real. And he met you there. Wait, we long for transcendence in an imminent world. And it's not just impersonal spirituality. It's a personal designer and being behind all the ordered world that's inviting you to participate in his nature. You are a creation. You are beautifully made and he's invited you to know him as father, as lover, as king, as friend. But until you recognize that the thing that you're putting your faith in is broken and not producing what it promises, you won't repent.
But I am proclaiming for you today and to you today, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus has invited us in. He's invited us to turn. But first, we must consider where we are putting our tokens. Bring your pain. Bring your sorrow. Bring your questions. Bring your doubt. But I know people across the world clinging to the Savior of the world named Jesus. certainly not by chance that the antithesis of metanoia is actually the word paranoia. And the age we find ourselves in has been dubbed the age of anxiety, where according to the family systems theorist Edwin Friedman, anxiety has become chronic and infectious at systemic levels, resulting in societal regression and the perversion of progress. Technological progress and advancement, emotional regression and the perversion of so-called progress. Without dissatisfaction and holy discontent, we will never repent. And it seems as though we are a paranoid society. Do you know what the definition of paranoia actually is? It's defined as this, unjustified suspicion or mistrust. Some of us don't trust God, and it probably isn't justifiable. Or maybe it is. But for a lot of us, it's not justifiable. He's been there with you. He's provided a way constantly. And he wants to meet you in the wilderness, the center of it. Sin has various understandings throughout the story of God and the scriptures, but the most common one is to miss the mark or to miss the way or to miss the direction. And do you know what the Israelites did in the wilderness for 40 years? They walked in a circle. What was supposed to take 11 days took 40 years. And the garment is just screaming, turn around, turn around, turn around. But there's walking, paranoid with an unjustified suspicion of God, despite the fact that they were liberated out of captivity in Egypt. My question for us today as we wrap up our time together is, are you walking in circles? Are you walking in circles? And is the way that you're on leading to ultimate flourishing? What is that way? What is that direction? Do you have a better alternative? Because so often, I'm like Peter in John 6, where I'm like, honestly, this is hard, but to whom shall I turn, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where should I go? Some of us are walking in circles, man. Sometimes I'm walking in circles. Jesus enters into the center of the circle to redirect us, to call us to repentance. And I think he's calling you to repent this morning as well. Some of you for the first time, for some of us, it's part of our regular rhythm. So as we come to the table today, we're going to...